Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today we have a special guest, one of the leading biblical scholars of our time. And uh, very, very excited about this. I've had her on before, and we did an episode on the book that I want everyone to go check out. The link's in the description. The Rape of Eve, Transformation of Roman Ideology and three early Christian retellings. Links in the description. Celine Lilly is a lecturer in religious studies at the University at Ox at University of Col Colorado Boulder, an adjunct professor at the University of Oklahoma and the Seattle School of Theology. So a big deal, big deal. Uh, her scholarly work focuses on the New Testament, the Nag Hammadi codices, which is where you get your Gnostic Egyptian text from, and other early literature of the Jesus movement, author of Rape of Eve, Transformation of Roman Ideology, and three early retellings of Genesis. Uh, Co-authors with Jada Calloway and Maya Kostrasis, Justin Lasser, and Hal Tusig. Um, you got to get the book. It's in the description. And I'm telling you, you will really enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. Welcome. Welcome to Gnostic Informant. How are you doing today? I'm good, Neil. Thanks so much for having me back. And thank you for that, for that glorious introduction. <laughs> well deserved. Well deserved. I really I know about that, but <laughs> really glad to have you on here. Um, so Derek from Myth Vision has dropped a super chat that is the question that I was gonna start off with. So, Derek, thanks for kicking off the conversation with a beautiful question. And it's love, Dr. Lily. Question. Please tell me how the Apocryphon of John paints Yahweh as the wicked creator, and why do the Christians think this way? Hi, Derek. Um, thank you so much. And that is a really awesome question. Um, I have to say that uh, I probably nuance this a little bit differently than some of my other colleagues do. And one of the things that um, that I think is really interesting in in this use of Yahweh is that I don't actually think it's supposed to be necessarily the creator of um, the world from the Hebrew Bible. And let me say a little bit more about that. So sure. one of the things that the Apocryphon of John is doing is um, playing with these two different stories that we get in the Genesis narrative. So 
if any of you have read Genesis recently, there are actually two creation narratives embedded in Genesis 1 through 3. And we get this first creation narrative where we get the creation of um, the creation of the world out of the void, out of the chaos. Um, God creates things and it's good. And then God says, you know, let us create a human being in our image, male and female. They created them. And then we like start again and God creates the world again. And this is the story where we get the Adam and Eve story from is this kind of second narrative of creation. The interesting thing about this is that in the first narrative of, a, of creation in the, so we're going to go with the Septuagint on this. And so this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. In that first narrative, God is called theos. So the Greek word for God. In the second narrative, God is called so Yahweh. So it's Elohim in the first. The second one is Yahweh, and God and Yahweh is actually translated as Kurios or or Lord, um, which also translates as Master, which is also the title given in Greek most of the time for the Roman emperor. And so I actually think that they oh. are playing. Yeah. So yeah. So playing. Two narratives. And so you get this first creation, which is the creation of, of the above, the world that's kind of in perfect harmony with the first Adam that is um that is um wonderfully harmonious before we get this rupture. And then in the second narrative, we actually have the creation of Adam and Eve from the earth, which is what we get in Apocryphon of John in this second, in kind of the second set of stories, the second creation story that's there as well. Um, so one of the things that I think they're doing, and I have to say who I'm really following on this is Karen King, but um, taking very seriously that this is a critique of these Roman emperors, the kings in the ancient world who claim themselves to be gods and really think that they're the ones who are in control of everything, do try and actually control everything through violence, kind of in the name of um, in the name of peace, maybe taking the name of peace in vain um, with the things like the Pax Romana. So, um, yeah. So <laughs> that's interesting. So you sort of we have this like to, to play off what you just said. Let's say let's go with it that. All right. So you have. This idea of spirits that are controlling things like the demiurge and there's daemons underneath it, and the on, and then so that's representative of the heavens and different realms. But on Earth, you have a similar setup, but it's the Roman emperor at the helm who's sort of like the demiurge, yeah. followed by these satraps, governors, whatever they are, and then they're the, these are the principles of the the powers that be, the you know the the um. What do we call the, the the rulers, the archons? The archons, principalities, powers, archons. Um, makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. So, so that, and I don't necessarily want to take away the, you know, the mythological form of this. I mean, these are these are really full blown myths. They're using as many resources as they can from their environment, but so many of them are using. Um, what we would talk about as Jewish tropes, that to think of them as anti-Jewish in this way, I think misses misses the ways in which they're actually um, using things like midrashic interpretational methods to really play with these stories and look for multiple meaning in them. You know, if you're if you're not really interested in um, 
Jewish stories for existence, which is kind of one of the narratives that comes out of this scholarship sometimes. Why would you pick the Adam and Eve story as the one that you're going to elaborate? Um, just yeah. as kind of one one of many questions we could ask about this. Yeah, before so before I move on to the next super uh, chat, I just want to ask you, because this sort of begs the question about Marcion and then these other groups, like, for example, the I'll just this one, I think the best example, I think, are the Canites, because the Canites are saying Cain is the good one because he's the tailor of the land. He's not offering up meat for blood like he's offering. He's the peaceful. So where do you think this these, do you think that we shouldn't be looking at these groups sort of as like together? They're all we should look at them all separately, maybe. So that's one of the questions that that. um I have had for a long time and continue to ask is what are the ways, particularly um, these groups that have primarily that kind of the scholarly lenses that we use have primarily been shaped by the anti-heresiological writings. What would it look like if we kind of just got rid of the categories for a little bit and yes. really started looking and seeing what's there? And again, I just I feel like I need to name Karen King in this because a lot of this comes from from her um, from her really fine work on this. But but thinking about um, this real diversity that happens within um the first many centuries in the early Christian, early Jesus movement milieu before Christianity is really a codified thing. And that, so we get um, both similarities, overlaps, and differences between all of these texts. And we've wanted to codify them very easily. But the thing that I think that it obscures is both the similarities between texts that we were told, oh, this is orthodoxy, this is heresy, they don't have anything in common, right. or between or between um, you know, different heresies, different things that are orthodox that actually have a lot of difference baked within them. But because we've created these meta-narratives around heresy and orthodoxy, and I might say that, you know, Gnosticism becomes a stand-in for heresy in certain ways, that it actually obscures um many of these. So, like for example, uh Apocryphon of John uses this wonderful um piece of Enoch, which is basically a critique of which is basically a critique of empire and Enoch. And um, I remember reading, and I'm not going to remember who this is at the moment, but a really wonderful scholar of this literature basically saying, you know, this is great. Apocryphon of John is clearly using Enoch, but, you know, the Gnostics don't care about, um, don't really care about these political critiques, but Enoch does. So, you know, it's just missing the boat on Enoch. Instead of asking the question of, could this actually, could Apocryphon of John actually be making a political critique about this? And that's actually the reason why it's using First Enoch in this way. So those are the types of questions that I think, um, for me, um, I, I think have, just awesome. been, have been really, really um, helpful. So um, I have to say, I'm still kind of moving my way through some of these major heresies and thinking about what it means to ask different questions um, concerning um what is said, what it said that they believe, and then going back to the text and seeing what's actually there. And, um, and I think you, what, what I really, um, think people should, I got, I don't know, you do whatever you want, but like me personally, uh, the, the idea of these groups are heresies. These groups are, you know, not, or, or, or uh, orthodox, yeah. like that needs to go. 
The idea that there's a proto, I hate when people say proto-orthodox, that needs to go too. Like, oh, I get it. Okay, you're looking at Justin Martyr, and you're saying he lines up good with what the church later on describes as orthodox. All right, fine. I guess you can say it's proto-orthodox. But, like, really, though, these other groups aren't, like, the Valentinians, they're not being called heresies in their time. People are like, oh, oh, that Valentinus is so famous and great. The Nassim preacher is so famous and great. It's not till later that they they sort of get tarnished by these texts. So, well, and I think that's just just to say too, you know, that's the thing about this word heresis anyway. That where we get heresy from is that it really just means difference, and it used to just describe a whole bunch of different philosophical schools wow. that might have been in competition with one another, but there wasn't this like this is good and this is bad necessarily. And you know, I think about um, like the phil- the physician Galen from the second century who talks about Christianity actually as a philosophy. Um, and he's like, you know, they believe some kind of weird stuff, but there are some really great things about this philosophy, Christianity. And so there are ways too in which um in which Christianity you know, in it, in all its multiple forms really fits into this larger milieu of thinking about, you know, what, what are the ways, what are the techniques that we can use, um, the techniques of the self, um, to, you know, to live the good life. And so in this way, again, you know, what, what happens when we start to put, um, to put these different literatures in conversation with one another and to think about something, somebody like, um, Valentinus as well, who, you know, he was up for bishop in Rome before he was. He was almost the Pope, guys. He was almost the Pope. Yeah. Exactly. And so realizing that um, these folks aren't actually that far away from each other. And then even bringing up someone like Justin Martyr, when we even start to label label him as proto-Orthodox, what are things that are obscured in those writings as well? When we're automatically assuming um, this place where it's like things have worked out already, we already know what's going to happen. And again, we miss the ways in which there's so much contingency in these first few centuries of um, of the movement as they're um, like uh, the creativity is just amazing, and what I don't I don't want to tr- suppress that in my scholarship. Maybe is the way I'll say. I it. agree. I like that's why that's why I love having you on here to, to explain these things. Mary Smith, thanks for much. Thoughts on Eve? Um, I'm guessing she's talking about in the context of your writing on in the book. Like thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, and Mary, I was going to say, please feel free to um to put anything more in the chat that you yeah, want please, about. Please. Um, you know, if you want clarifications on this, but I think one of the things, you know, Apocryphon of John is a great example of this. Um, these three texts that have a lot of similarities, Apocryphon of John, um, the reality of the rulers also called the hypostasis of the archons and then, um, on the origin of the world. And, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things about Eve, and I'm not going to remember his first name, but there's a, a scholar, his last name is Phipps, and actually writes this article about um, that he thinks the Eve story is actually read through um, Pandora. And this is for by early Christians. And so this is one of the ways in which Eve turns kind of really bad in the midst of everything, that she's conflated with Pandora. She brings in sin, just like Pandora opens the box. Um, if you go back and read the Hesiod story from Pandora, 
um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's pretty gruesome. Like women are basically made um, to be the bane of men's existence as a punishment for Prometheus giving, giving men fire. Um, so, you know, this is the story of the creation of women. And somehow this really seems that folks like Tertullian are, um, in particular, are reading these stories together um, later. And Tertullian, um, one of my, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite early, early church guys, uh, he's from like around 200. He's writing from um, Carthage in Northern Africa. And he basically, again, he's one of these people who starts out Orthodox and then becomes a heretic later. Um, but he basically- it's Always the coolest about, ones that do that. It's always the coolest ones. Ex uh, I don't know though. We'll, we'll see what you think when I tell you a little bit, when I say a little bit All more right. about But All he right. basically says that, you know, um, he has this uh, this treatise on the dress of women, and uh, so oh, he's telling okay. women how to dress. And then he then he goes off on this whole thing about you know, women. Don't you all know that you're an Eve? And starts by saying you're the devil's gateway, and because you you led men astray, meaning Adam, the son of man had to die. So it's basically women's fault. Um, the crucifixion is all about you know blaming women and and original sin on this. And so the thing that I think is so interesting about these texts that are, you know, coming from around this same period of time, probably a little bit earlier, is that they're saying, whoa, hold on a second. There's a very different way that we can interpret Eve. Um, and in in these stories, she's the savior. Eating the fruit from the tree is good. She's actually the one who breathes life into Adam. So it's this very different story, not only than we get in the ancient world, but a... Um, a really different narrative than we've inherited in Western society in relationship to um, Eve and women's position in, um, in you know, I think hopefully it's gotten better for, hopefully it's gotten better for women and women identified folks over the, over the course of the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. And yet we still see these impulses. My students all the time, you know, they're, 18, 19 years old, and they know the stories about Eve, whether they've grown up in a, you know, in a Judeo-Christian context or not. She's the one who brings sexual sin into the world. This is why we have shame. This is why women are evil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've looked into this a little bit with the Greek and how, um, I always wonder that if, because we look at the Septuagint, Eve or Ewa, yeah. um, there might be, they might be looking at that as like, one of the names of Persephone and there's this Bacchic chant, Ewa, Ewa. And so I've, I've not the only one who's come, I've looked this and seen some other scholars have pointed this out as well, that there might be a connection with Persephone taking the bite of the pomegranate and Eve taking the bite of the, uh, you know, the, or the tree of knowledge. And I wonder if you ever can't delve into that at all, at all. Cause that's, not everybody. That's kind of like going deep in the theory land. But, you know, what do you think about that? So, you know, I I, I don't want to say anything for sure. I do want to say that, you know, there have been a lot of people who have um, several folks who I've run into who've, who've asked the question, you know, it's not an apple tree. There's nothing that says that the tree of knowledge is an apple tree, although that's kind yeah, of what we yeah. in, in depictions and have connected it with a pomegranate. So there are people who are making, who have actually made those. I'm going to have to get that from you after this in the email. You got to send me that because that's, that's big for me. I need to see that. Yeah. So, um, so asking, you know, is it a fig tree? Is it a pomegranate tree? These have been kind of all these, um, 
all these ideas around this. And because then, then, not to cut you off, but this is so oh, that's just blowing my mind. Because 80s is 80s, Adam, ADs, like. There, is, is there some there, like it just looks like from a from a from a when you take a step back you're like it looks like there's something connecting those two Hades and Persephone who's called Ewa and then Adam and Eve and like okay there, you might you, if you're looking at it like this you might be like well Hades and Persephone are the king and queen of of the underworld it's like okay yeah that's not the same as Adam and Eve who are getting kicked out of paradise it's actually the opposite where these two are stuck in the underworld, but the other two are getting kicked out of, you know, paradise. But like, maybe the difference is what matters. Maybe there's, maybe that's what the connection is. That's flipping it on its head. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff out there. So, you know, well, I, you know, this is, this is outside of my purview. Um, yeah. Neil, but, but the thing that I can say is that those are the types of connections that folks are making in the ancient world all the time. I think about something, um, again, like on the origin of the world, for example, and the Eros and Psyche story is put smack dab in the middle of this. So folks are reading these different mythologies together all the time and finding connections like this, making meaning. So I, I am definitely... Um, I am definitely of the of the uh, opinion that I want to open up as much space as possible and curiosity before we foreclose it. Like there's so much evidence out there um, to to come down and say absolutely not on something. I, I, I think is I think it's really dangerous, and I think it limits what we're able to actually see, and um, and it limits our questions. Like, you know what? I can ask a question and I may get to the end of my research and say, well, that that didn't turn out the way that I that I imagined that it would. But I learned so much in the process so that foreclosing these questions and foreclosing these possibilities, to me, I think is the, the opposite of good, rigorous academic work. I, I love that approach so much. That is just such a, it's such good, so good to hear stuff, that approach, you know? Thank you for that. Derek is back with another one. Is it fair to say their situation in the empire or in their environment is reflected in their mythology? Any way to unravel their mythology that way? Good question. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's really kind of what I think is going on in this is that it is, they are reading. Um, and just to say, um, I always, like to let people know this ahead of time, you know, the book centers sexual violence. This is a huge thing in the ancient world. So just to um, be aware that we're moving a little bit into this territory. Um, but I do think it's these big questions about violence and the way in which empire and sexual violence really go hand in hand for the Roman empire. And, um, and so this myth about Eve, um, a being kind of a part of this constellation of female or androgynous, but towards the feminine rather than kind of the universal masculine that we get, um, really seems to be some kind of critique to me of these larger imperial, um, both mythologies, ideologies, strategies that they're using in the world. And this is the thing about myth all the time, right? Is that it's not just about some primordial past, but it's about using the primordial past as a, um, um, as a tool 
to help us understand where we are today. And so I think one of the things that these folks are really trying to do is explain the violence that they see in um, in the world around them. You know, what does it mean to be um, in, a, in a land that's occupied by... Um, by Rome. Um, there have been several people, um, including um, a colleague and friend of mine, Shirley Polson, who has put, uh, um, she does work on healing and the and the Apocryphon of John. And she's really asking great questions around, you know, what if this is written in Alexandria? Thinking about the situation too of the Jews, um, the diaspora Jews who are in Alexandria using these stories. And, you know, just to say too, again, like, why I think it's so important to think of this expansive way of how they're using the Hebrew scriptures is if you look at someone like Philo of Alexandria, who's writing, you know, the mid first century, he is reading things like Genesis alongside Plato. He is yeah. absolutely combining these things. And why wouldn't we think that the Nag Hammadi folks are actually using these same allegorical strategies absolutely. when they're rewriting these myths? So I think these are some of the ways that we start to unravel what's going on and ask questions about, um, you know, even if we think about our myths in the United States, these myths that we have about all kinds of things, you know, whether it's, um, uh, that's terrible, George Washington, I was about to say George Bush chopping down the cherry tree, but it would actually be George Washington. Or, you know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps or, you know, the myth of the American West. All of these things help to shape who we are. And we think about them as kind of um, there are these natural ways to think about kind of who who um, who we are as Americans and um, as U.S. citizens, and we also know that they reflect very particular ideologies, and they're not just about myths of the past, but they're about the present. They're about our material reality, and I guess this is one of the other things too with these Gnostic myths that that I really think is important is that because they were hidden in these jars and we didn't have them for all of this time, there there seems to be also this dissociation of them from the material reality of the people who are writing them. And so how do we start to kind of slowly put these pieces back together, knowing that we're probably not ever going to get back to, you know, what really happened, but these possible constructions of what a past might look like. And, and I think too, just to say, you know, as we're sitting, having this conversation now, still discussing these myths, 2000, 3000 year, years later, they do do some kind of um, psychic and creative work for us. And, um, and realizing, you know, the efficacy of this um, for this type of work, whether it's for us now or in the ancient world, you know, what, what do myths do, do for us? And some of that is going to be about this stuff that's actually happening on the ground in their daily lives um, that, that they're reflecting on every day. Um, and maybe it's something so big that they have to put it in a myth rather than... Um, deal with it directly, uh, which is maybe why a bunch of these texts don't really envision a different future, but instead kind of envision the total collapse and destruction of the world at the end of them. Yeah. The, and the way you're approaching it and like, it makes me, it, it, it opens up so many questions on like who these characters represent on, on, in, on earth or in the Roman empire. Like is Jesus not only representing a historical person, but also is he taking on the attributes of something else? Is he 
like you know is he the i don't know like because you have this idea of the suffering suffering servant yeah. who's, who's israel in the old testament and all of a sudden all these tropes are being applied to jesus is he is like is he taking on attributes of the nation of israel itself in a way like it makes you wonder is that how they're but i, I could be wrong but like the way you the way under what you're saying that's what's making me think that like these characters in these apocryphal texts might represent more than just one person or one, you know, when I like, like if the, if the Demiurge is representing the Roman emperor, it also can say, what is Jesus representing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I think this is a big, I think this is a big question. If we think about the gospels, um, you know, particularly the gospel of Mark being written uh, most likely in the midst of, or just after uh, the Jewish war in so which goes from 66 to 7172 CE um you know the Josephus in as much as you know some people say he exaggerates um there's a lot of uh, rhetoric that's going on there too nevertheless we know I, that oh no i was going to say that i didn't mean to cut you off but i i keep doing that but i was going to say like hmm. when you're reading Josephus he's he, the way he's describing especially in the wars it's like this is a really dark time like you, you're walking through the countryside of Israel, you're seeing people on crosses everywhere. You're seeing places on fire. You're seeing people starving, skinny, dying. Like that's that's dark. Exactly. And you know what better metaphor? I think for um, it's not just. I mean, it's 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 when metaphor actually is reflecting reality. What better metaphor in the midst of a situation where people are starving, where the world is literally burning, where where it, I mean, thousands upon thousands of people were crucified and not just, cru I mean, crucified in horrific ways, not, not just the regular horrific crucifixion, but, but Josephus talks about that they'd put the bodies on crosses in different ways to kind of um, make the torture even worse around this. And so then in the midst of that, what does it look like to have a crucified savior? I mean, these are all really important questions to ask. And it's not just going to be, you know, sometimes I think we think about the uniqueness of, of, of Jesus, um, probably a little too much as like, as if it was only him who was ever crucified with the two people next to him. And as if people, you know, throughout the empire didn't see this. I mean, it was one of the main deterrents, um, for people to, you know, to keep them in line is, you know, you throw a couple people up on crosses, which is one of the thing, things John Dominic Crossan actually talks about, you know, you throw some people up on crosses randomly to remind them, you know, what the empire can do. And, um, and that is going to have, um, I, I think my imagination can't even really grasp the impact of seeing that at the crossroads or at the wall in the town that you live in. Well, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, this one's kind of a joke, it seems like, but I heard there's a Lilith who got kicked out of the garden because she wouldn't do it in the missionary position. She found a cave with, filled with demons who preferred doggy. Any thoughts on that? I was going to say, there's all kinds of stories about Lilith. Um, and one of the ones is that she was much more sexually promiscuous um, than Eve. So this also, though, just to say, comes from the fact that there are two creation stories. Right. So then Lilith was the first one that was created in Genesis 1 through the first part of 2. And then we get Eve in the second one. So it it brings all of this spotter, particularly um, you can read about Lilith in Genesis Rabbah, one of the rabbinical um texts on uh on um 
on Genesis. And so there's, I mean, there's lots of stuff out there. And I think about like, um, one of my favorite places that Lilith has shown up, I guess, in the last 20 years was in True Blood. Um, so we get Lilith who shows up. Yeah, True Blood. Um, go show. watch True Blood, y'all. <laughs> Great show. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, Yaku, thank you for the super chat. Do you think Revelation and the Sibylline books are from the same genre as Apocrypha of John? Um, so I am going to, I am going to be very frank that my, uh, my scholarly knowledge of the Sibylline books is not what I'd like it to be. So I don't want to make a lot of conjecture here. One of the things that I am always careful about though, is so obviously the Sibylline books, um, you know, in, in, in that they're oracles. And interestingly, I just gave a lecture to one of my classes this morning on revelation. Um, I have questions about, this is going to, here's the theme of the day. I have questions about the genre of um, apocalypticism and if it's actually the best genre to use, is it actually a genre? Do things that are labeled apocalypses actually have that much in common? And I think, again, these are questions that we need to ask. One of the things about this, and I'm sure most of your folks know this, but um, you know, apocalypse is really on, it just means to unveil. And the way I really like to think about this is I imagine that um, Neil, you, everyone out there, like you've had an, the experience of having an epiphany. It doesn't necessarily need to be something mind blowing, but you know, you, um, even something like, you know, you hear a song that you knew as a teenager and you listen to it, you know, years later and you, and whoa, that means something really different than I thought it did when I was 14 years old. Um, or you have an experience and it changes the way you look at the world. And that's really the way that we should think about apocalypse, this unveiling, this way of seeing, you know, there's a before and after of it. But if you look at something like Revelation, what it says again and again and again is that it's prophecy. And so I actually think it's part of this genre of prophecy. What if we look at Apocryphon of John it partially in this way? I think we'd want to be careful about that. Um, when we get oracles, part of this is about prophecy. And what happens when we start to just turn this a little and think about then the multiple ways prophetic voices get portrayed during this period of time? So that would probably be the question that I would start with to do some of this comparative work. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for that. Super. That's a good question, actually. It's a great, it's a really great question. <laughs> yeah. And another thing before I move on, because I'm just thinking about, because uh, I was doing a, doing a video on Roman religion and a lot of the, a lot of like what I was reading and for sources and stuff um, points to the Sibylline books being pagan in the beginning yeah. and then like transitioning into Judeo-Christian text and then, and then Eventually, it's just Christian texts, like it's purely a Christian text, sibling oracles, all the way through the Middle Ages and medieval. Like it's just they're, they they keep bring, they keep writing new sibling oracles that are specifically Christian, anti-Muslim stuff like that. But like we go back before Christianity even existed, the sibling books are telling the Romans to go and import Magna Mater to Rome or bring go get the Venus Erycina statue and bring it to Rome and like these are the it's all that's pagan like so it's yeah. interesting to see how the sibling books transition just as Rome Romans transition from 
the old ways to the new ways, I guess you'd call it whatever, you know? And, yeah. And I think also realizing, you know, this, there's obviously a long tradition of um, oracles too that, you know, comes to Rome from Greece and thinking about sites like Delphi, um, which the oracle there was, um, was active for a very, very long time. Um, although, you know, starts to fall out kind of during the Roman, um, during the Roman period. But so, you know, this, this, um, and I guess, you know, again, thinking about which I haven't, I haven't done a ton of um, real strict research on this, but just in my own teaching, thinking about these connections, again, between oracle and prophecy and how are they similar? How are they different? Um, how are they different between thinking about, you know, polytheistic traditions versus thinking about, you know, Judaism and the legacy of prophecy there? And I just think there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of rich questions that we can ask, um, again, around both where these things connect, where people later on would have would have made these connections because of because of these possible similarities that they saw, and being able to to really explore um, explore those hypothetical questions as well. You know, there's I, I mean, this again, it, these things don't come from nowhere. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Usual, thank you for the super sticker. Always appreciate that. Thank you for the support. You are awesome. Uh, let's see. We got another one from Derek saying, has Dr. Lily read Dr. Richard C. Miller's work? I have not really. So it's on my list and I'll, I'll move it to the top, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There we go. Thank you for that. Um, let's see. There's a couple more good questions that I was looking at. Oh, guys, thank you for the super chat for the really large super chat. I really appreciate that. Why? How would oh, how widespread was the Apocrypha of John? And why do you think the Gnostics lost their popularity? Ooh, that's a juicy question. Um, so the Apocryphon of John, um, I actually think was probably pretty popular. Um, why do I think that? Because we have four copies of it in Coptic, and it also follows Irenaeus. So we have these four copies in, in Coptic that are coming out of Egypt. And Irenaeus is also knows a very similar story to this from Southern France. And wow. so this tips to me that people are talking about these stories throughout the empire. Um, I, so a couple things maybe to say about this. I do think they are, um, they can be extraordinarily confusing stories. Um, they draw on a lot of different resources. This is one of the things that people say is that it's one of kind of that maybe charges against um, the folks using these texts is that they're uh, elite or elitist because of the amount of philosophy. Um, even, you know, they quote the Hebrew by, I mean, they quote everything from, you know, Genesis to Isaiah, to Paul, to Mark, they know a lot of texts. So there is definitely something, um, that is, uh, that's educated about the people who are writing them. Does that mean the people who are hearing them, um, aren't familiar with these stories. I don't know if I always want to jump to those conclusions. I think it's very easy to make people in the ancient world two-dimensional, and particularly people who we view as um, 
illiterate or of the lower classes, but that was almost everyone in the ancient world. And yet these are people who had proximity. I mean, think about all the theaters in the ancient world. I mean, these theaters are huge. It's not going to be for just this 1% of the elite. This is part of this is about, you know, bread and circuses is about public entertainments. And so we know that people are, people are, um, you know, have have access to this. I think about all of the people who I know who've never read Freud and yet know what a Freudian slip is or have heard of the unconscious before. And why wouldn't we think of, of like, why wouldn't we think folks in the ancient world have this same type of sensibility around popular ideas that have seeped into the culture? The other thing is that there's all of this visual teaching that goes on through through Roman and Greek and local architecture that also teaches people. So um, again, I just think I think we limit um, we limit possibilities when we when we think that these like it only elite folks would have understood this. Um, I know several folks who have used. Um, use things like the Apocryphon of John with um, with uh, folks who are doing poor organizing in prisons. And sometimes they understand it better than these texts better because there actually is, I think, this political critique that is within it. This segues to, I think it's one of the reasons why the Gnostics lost their popularity, that, you know, these are confusing texts. You do need to have probably somebody who's explaining some of the things to you. I also think that it's harder for us to understand because we're not a part of that milieu today. Um, but I do think there is this, um, A, I think there's a critique of the powers that be. Um, those get couched in a very particular way when they're brought in through the Pauline letters in the New Testament, which kind of softens the blows of what's, I think, going on in some of those texts. Some of those texts are what these folks are using here. And, um, and I think a lot of, you know, just to say any of these texts that are that are using these ideas of gnosis, again, I want to say I think we find these things in the canonical um, New Testament as well. I don't think they're only outside of it. But there is this idea of personal revelation. And um, when you have personal revelation and are really... Um, uh, pushing for an unmediated relationship with the divine, it becomes very hard to box this in and make a structure around it. And I think that's, I think that's the other reason. Um, I do, um, there are folks who critique this. I go back and forth, but I also do think it's worth mentioning that, you know, again, someone like Irenaeus, who's writing uh, his uh, Against Heresies, you know, he, um, he went actually to Rome. I believe it was, I, I believe he wanted to complain to the bishop about the Montanists um, where he was in Lyon. So he left to go complain about the heretics where he was. And um, it looks like, you know, on that trip, he gets back and there was a huge martyrdom in Lyon. And um, so just thinking about what it would look like to come back to your community and have all of these people um, who, uh, you know, who had uh, been killed, um, by the emperor in the arena, et cetera. And um, then, you know, maybe you're like, let's consolidate this. Let's show people that, you know, um, we we have good Roman values. Um, we're not scary. We can keep our people in line, um, all this kind of stuff. And I think all of this is just worth considering. 
Yeah, that made a lot of sense. And it seems like, yeah, these Gnostics are trying to go deep into a lot of different stuff that, that it's not as simple as just, just have faith and that's it. That's all you got to worry about. Like Paul's message, the, you know, faith is what saves. That is like, that seems like it, it makes a lot more sense that that idea would last out for the wide, for the masses. Whereas this, these different secret te- retellings of, of Genesis, that's more of like educated people in, in a library reading that kind of stuff. Or for people who've been, you know, initiated. I mean, even if you think about like Jesus in the Gospels says to the, um, you know, the disciples, like I tell you this stuff in secret. Like this is not for the public. So it's for anybody who's actually initiated, which in this case really seems to be, you know, regardless of gender, education, social status, and I can imagine that being very dangerous if that's the message that's getting out there. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that super chat, guys. Really appreciate that. Drawing down the stars. One of my great, great friends. Thank you for the super chat. Can you talk about Adam's sex before the creation of Eve? Is Adam intersexed by gendered like Fanny's in the original text? Love that question. So this is really awesome. I also think, you know, there's been some work thinking about ancient androgynes. And so just so that folks know, andro is the word is the word for male. Um, gune is the word for female. And they put it together for androgyne. And so that's where you get this male-female kind of entity. Um, uh, hermaphrodite is actually a god. In, um, in the ancient world. So just to, again, to kind of notice this gender fluidity that we get. Actually have actually have a loaded up image of that goddess right here. Just to, nice. Just to show everybody what we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so there are all kinds of um, rabbinical and other texts that really read um, Adam as this pre-gendered human being. And um, where he is kind of neither male or female. Um, one of the big questions that scholars have asked is, you know, does this still lean towards the universal male in particular ways? So, you know, we get this male, female, but it's really a male. There are folks that um, I think it's Dale Martin books, Sex and the Single Savior, um, where he addresses some of this. Um, so this is a big question about Adam. Um, he's. It's also been read along with the story from the symposium of where they talk about, um, you know, human beings used to have their other, be with their counterpart. And so there are male, female human beings, female, female human beings, and male, male human beings. And they're too powerful and the gods are worried about them taking over their power. And so the gods split them in half. And then everybody searches for their other half throughout their lifetime. So this is one of the stories from Plato's Symposium. And so this is also has been read alongside um, this, this first creation narrative of Adam, where it, where it does say, and again, just to remind folks, Adam really is Adam. It's the word for the human being. Why is it Adam? Because Adam is made from the Adama or the earth. So we get all of these kind of plays on words that we, the earthling from the earth is probably a much better translation of who, who Adam is. But yeah, so really there is this, um, 
you know, we might even want to think about it as pre-sexed version, but there is lots of really interesting work going on around thinking about gender fluidity, what was happening in the ancient world. There was just a, a New York Times op-ed over the weekend about an article. Uh, it was a little, it was an article I, by a rabbi. I'm actually pretty sure that he is, um, he's a, he's a practicing rabbi, but talking about the multiple genders that are found in the Talmud. So this gender fluidity is a big thing in the ancient world. And we are just kind of getting on board with that in the 21st century in the West. Yeah. That's what I'm, from the research or the, the, you know, digging I've done, it seems like the ancient world, this was just all normal. Nobody even, nobody talked about it. Nobody cared about it. It just was like, people were just fluid and you had different, it, it just seems like that's the way it was. I don't know. It's weird. Like one of my, one, another scholar, a friend of mine says that there were, the, the Greeks don't even have a word for gay. There's no word for that. They just, you just, just a man loves another man or something like there's no word for that. It's just, it's just all the same. I thought that's interesting, you know? Yeah, really, really different. And again, you know, if, if people want to kind of even start to look at that around, uh, around male stuff, like reading something like Plato's Symposium just lets you know how far away we are from <laughs> kind of their ideas of gender in the ancient world. And again, you know, just to say too, these other, um, and particularly on the origin of the world, these other retellings of the Genesis story, I think they're really playing with this where Eve is connected actually with Hermaphrodite when she's in the, um, when she's in the divine realm with Sophia. And then somehow, you know, her breath goes into Adam and then she and Adam become partners. So it's almost, I actually had a student oh. who asked a question about this, like, oh, is this like the opposite of the rib being taken that's happening here? So instead of having kind of like the stand in male here, it has kind of this stand in feminine as the universal. And yet there's this, there's this real gender fluidity that's going on. We also find this in a text like Thunder Perfect Mind, which on the origin of the world has like as a little hymn to Eve. Um, but we get this gender fluidity there too. So we see it all over the place in the ancient world. And again, I think as we are becoming more savvy in the 21st century about thinking through gender, we're getting better at asking the right questions of the ancient texts. Thank you. That was great. Stephanie Jordan, thanks for the super chat. Thoughts on Paul and his views on Gnosis. Ooh, fun. Um, this is another like super juicy question that I I would love more time to think about at some point. But the two things that I'll say about this, and I, you know, I do think um so many pros and cons about uh, so many pros and cons that we can say about Paul in general. But the first, first and second Corinthians, and here's just one place where this plays out. Um, I actually have a, uh, there's a piece in uh, first Corinthians two that I do a Gnosticized translation of so that people can see kind of high, how ideological the translations of Nag Hammadi are. So there's a lot of this similar language that we get in Corinthians um, connected to Paul. Going back to Persephone and Demeter, just down the road are the Eleusian mysteries. So we have the mysteries right down the street. Um, wow. We also know that there's a temple to Asclepius. There's a huge temple to Apollo. Um, and these things are all going on. You know, Corinth is really cosmopolitan. So just to kind of think about this. But Paul talks about um, 
like knowing Christ in a mystery. And this word mysterion is actually the same word that's used for all of the mystery religions in the ancient world. And so somehow he's connecting, I think, what whatever um, he's talking about and what's happening in Corinth with the mysteries as a whole, that it's a way that they can understand this. I think it's really interesting. I think it's underexplored. Um, the other thing that I think is fascinating in 2 Corinthians, so I don't know how many of you know um, the Gospel of Mary, but um, in the Gospel of Mary, Mary is asked by the disciples for a teaching that she's gotten, a secret teaching that she's gotten from Jesus. And we get several pages that are torn out, but towards the end, there's this ascent of the soul. And we know that, you know, the ascent of the soul, again, was one of these technologies of the self that people used. We find this in various um, various uh, philosophical traditions in um, in the ancient world. But she's, she's moving through these powers and basically, you know, these horrible powers. And she's kind of like this little trickster soul. And um, she finds these very um, quirky ways to kind of um, move through these powers and ascend so that she can rest. Well... Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about getting caught up in the third heaven. And so we wonder, ah, is he practicing one of these ascents of the soul? What is this about? So, you know, again, this is a moment where I wish we could talk to Paul. I wish we had more information about the letters, but I do think there are some things going on there, which is why we end up getting lots of Pauline quotations in a bunch of these texts from Nag Hammadi. A lot of them are using Paul. And there's some really great work done on this, by the way, just so that folks, I think about Elaine Pagel's work on this, um, really, really great. So thinking through kind of what these connections are between um, Paul and Gnosis, um, thinking about uh, Karen King and her Gospel of Mary book actually has a chapter looking at connections between the gospel of Mary and Paul. So just to, uh, so yeah, so great. This is an awesome question. And I think there needs to be, I, I feel like my refrain, and I think we need to do more work on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for that. Great question. Constellation Pegasus. Thanks for the super chat. So Genesis teaches a flat earth and dome cosmology. Later rabbinic writings sure seem to verify that. It's kind of true. I am. You know. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> I don't know if I have anything to say yeah. beyond that, but I'm going to start looking for it now the next time I'm reading rabbinic texts. Yeah. I guess you have, you know, the four corners and all this, you know. Well, you know, of course, too, with it, as soon as you said four corners, I'm like, you know, back to Irenaeus, you know, why do we have four gospels? Because there are four corners of the earth, of course. Yeah, I remember reading that. I didn't, forgot. I didn't know if it was him or something. I remember seeing that from one of the church fathers or whatever. That's who it was. Okay. Now I remember where to find it. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever. That's, uh, you know, that's definitely how these. That's, this, is, this is actually another thing I want to say before I go to the next one is that I do not think that these checks, I don't care how old they are. Whoever wrote Genesis, whatever, who, whether it was a class of priests or whatever, I don't think they meant to, for this to be literal. I think right. the 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 Protestant movement in the in the 16th century sort of like went to this like everything has to be perfect and has to be every word has to be literally true, 
And I think that comes later. I don't think the early, I, I think the farther back you go, the less they took it seriously by saying every word is true. I think it was more of like a metaphorical sense. It was meant to be that way. And then later on, people, fundamentalists just went wild with it. I, don't, I think it's the opposite. I think it turned into fundamentalism where in the beginning it really wasn't like that. What do you, you think that way too? Maybe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everything was metaphorical thinking in, in ways in the ancient world. Like it just how they thought. And you see this when you, when you see the histories all the time, like they're not interested in necessarily what happened. They're really interested in what it meant. And so, you know, whether you're reading like the Roman historian Tacitus or the Jewish historian Josephus or whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark, they're really interested in making meaning. This doesn't mean, which I always think is fascinating, you know, this doesn't mean that, um, you know, like I think about the founding narratives of Rome and on the list of triumphs in the forum, they had the date and the triumph listed. And so one of them was um, Romulus's triumph in like the eighth century. And, you know, historians are like, and eh, there's no way, blah, 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 blah. Like this is some whatever. And sometime in the early, early mid 2000s, they're doing excavations on the Palatine Hill. And lo and behold, they find these huts that date to the eighth century. Um, there was another recent thing about Tacitus, where Tacitus writes about the, um, the conquest of Britannia. And they're like, he's talking about like, and we know there's tons of rhetorical speeches, things that never happened. It's really about what it means to Tacitus as he's writing this. Mm -hmm. But there's this, um, he talks about kind of where the garrisons and stuff are. And it turns out, you know, archaeology in the last 20 years in, um, in Great Britain has borne out that like those things, those pieces were actually accurate. So it's this weird mix that they have. And, you know, this is one of the things too, that my students are always freaking out. They're like, what do you mean? They don't really care about the facts. And I was like, it's just, that's a thing that we care about. Right. And I do totally agree. The sola scriptura thing that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, big deal, big turning point in this. And there, there are people who've written about this next step, but from what I understand, and, you know, here's where I'm an ancient historian and not so much a modern one. But that it seems that the rise in fundamentalism really comes alongside Darwin's origin of species right. and this idea that that we know we should not be we should not have evolved from um, from primates. And um, and so that this really is the rise then alongside just to notice this is the rise of the modern academy. We get the rise of psychology that comes archaeology um, history the way we know it now. All of this stuff is happening in the late 19th century and right alongside as things get more complex, as we have these really complex sci scientific notions that are being um, that are being spread through, you know, these new um, new technologies of, you know, the telegraph radio, thinking about all of these ways that we can connect with each other. The world both becomes much smaller and much more complex. And so here then we have fundamentalism kind of on the rise. Well said. It's the, Dar the Darwin effect, we should call it. The effects that Darwin has on everything. Like the world as we know it is not, not the same. But you know, when, when I read Aristotle, and I'm, Aristotle is not fun or easy to read at all. But the, when I try to, I should say, I should, when I, not when I do it, when I try to, he seems like he's, the animalia the, the text animalia he's really close he's this close to be to like 
describing evolution because he's talking about these animals and that are similar to each other and all he's talking about these different groups and it's like you're almost it's almost like he's like he's getting there but he just doesn't have the evidence to like go for it that's my takeaway i could be wrong but i i was gonna say it's been a long time since i've read it so i'm not gonna wade into i'm not i but it's but again it's like oh i need to pick air i need to pick that up yeah, again look into it but, yeah, but well. i do think there there are all these things in the ancient world that that if we look at them you know they are both very far away from where we are now and there are all of these similarities and my guess is you know if you if humanity makes it another um another 2500 years that they're going to think the very same thing about um what we're what we're coming up with um this is so random but just like a funny anecdote since we didn't talk about um constellation pegasus's uh statement too much uh, it must have been the year before the pandemic um the AAR, so the Academy of um, the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature, their main meeting, they kind of do this once a year, was in Denver. And at the same time in Denver, the Flat Earther Conference was happening. And I guess I had heard rumors, who knows if it's true, but that were that there were some confrontations <laughs> between the religious studies folks and um and the flat earthers. So, you know, these debates nice. continue today. That's awesome. Thank you for that super chat. Oh, he's got another one right after this. Thank you for the thanks for the double super chats. Charles Tazi Russell says Adam was a kind of bisexual creature until Eve appeared. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses don't teach that anymore. From the Epic of Creation movie book, they did long ago. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and um I again I don't I don't know a lot about Jehovah's Witness theology, but this, but this is a, um, this is one of these things that, so, um, that, uh, Adam was bisexual and then, you know, the feminine parts is removed with the side or, um, the rib, depending on how we end up translating that. And so then that feminine part comes out and then we get the compliment, um, entry of this, which is also, again, you know, back to Plato's symposium and the story of the, um, Aristophanes with the human beings connected to one another. You know, I think you can get a lot more context about where this story comes from when you look at the story of Anki. Anki's the creator in the Sumerian text, and he removes part of, I can't remember the guy character's name. I should know it, too. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. But it's 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 very specific on takes a part of the rib out to create the next person to create the woman. I think it's the woman. I don't know. But yeah, there's the rib thing going on. But um, yeah, so I think there's some, something there to look at. I think I, I, what I'm getting at is like, they didn't just make this. I don't think they just invented this story out of thin air. It's coming no. from an ancient mythological tradition that's very sacred, and very dear to people in the in the Levant area. Yeah, those stories from the ancient Near East um, are really, you know, epic of Gilgamesh. Um all of those stories are extraordinarily important for understanding kind of the the long history of um of the genesis uh of the genesis narrative yeah so thanks for that super chat though appreciate yeah. that good good comment by the way thank you for that paul kickling says genesis increases magdalene's importance she is needed by jesus to reverse a and e a female christ gospels are really about everyone except jesus I love this. Um, and I love, I just, I really appreciate this juxtaposition between thinking about um, 
the Magdalene who gets, uh, of course, you know, framed by Pope Gregory in the fifth century as a whore, you know, she's the prostitute. Um, but really thinking about, you know, if, if we think about this separation, I am not, a, I am not really in my own work, uh, a binary sex person. I like to, I like to have things a lot more complicated than that. But, but I do think one of the ways to think about this is that through a bunch of these other stories, so we get this separation, Jesus becomes the new Adam. And then what does it look like to have Mary Magdalene as the new Eve, which I think sometimes we get in these texts rather than having this dichotomy between Eve and the Virgin Mary, you know, who of course the virgin um, who gets, who really gets changed. I mean, if we think about how virginity works in the ancient world, it's really about autonomy in certain ways. And I, you know, one of the stories that I think about a lot is the story of um, Daphne and Apollo from Ovid. And, you know, Daphne's a nymph and she, um, she wants to remain a virgin because she wants to hang out with Diana or Artemis and like hang out with the ladies and hunt all day. Like this is what she wants to do. And of course, um, Apollo makes a fool of Cupid and he gets mad. And so Daphne, you know, gets in trouble around this. But this ancient idea of virginity really is about self-possession. And, you know, all of the things that happen during that time, if you're a woman and you become part of a family system, then you're responsible to husband, household, children, etc. And so not being a part of this um, allows for different kinds of possibilities. And, you know, Daphne is one of the places we see this. There are a lot of people who theorize, particularly um, Virginia Burris, about this in early Christianity. Like, why might women want to be celibate? Well, like, Paul and Thecla. So Thecla gets to go and teach and preach and be outside of this family system, which is where her mother wants her. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that we could say about the reasons why of that, but this idea of kind of um, autonomy, but with, um, with the Virgin Mary, how this ends up being perceived in a lot of Christian theology is about purity instead. And so then in particularly, I think, the extra-canonical text where we get this connection between um, Jesus as a second Adam and then, you know, all of these Magdalene stories. I think this is a, I just, I think it's a really interesting way to think about this. Yeah. And then you have in the Gospel of Mary, you have this idea that she has the inner secrets of Jesus told only to her. No one else knows. And they're all like, yeah, right. He didn't tell a woman the innermost secrets. And Peter's like, listen, guys, if Jesus wanted her to know the secrets, then he wanted her to know. And she wouldn't lie about this. And I'm just like, this is an interesting. I think everyone should check out that Gospel of Mary. It's an interesting text. It's, it yeah. really changes things up a little bit. You know? Well, and just to say, Peter's the one who actually first asks her for these stories. Like, she, he's like... Oh, Mary, tell us the story about, you know, tell us, tell us teachings that you've heard that we haven't heard about, you know, things, you know, that we don't know. He's actually the one who gets one of the ones who gets pissed at the end. He's so jealous of her. Oh yeah. Um, okay. I could, is it, is it someone Levi, else that comes to her defense? I'm thinking of Levi, Levi who comes to her. Levi. Defense. Okay. Um, yeah. But this trope, you know, of Peter and Mary, I mean, we get this all over the place, like Thomas 114, you know, let Mary leave us for women aren't worthy of life. Um, or females aren't worthy of life. Oh yeah. I mean, it's he, and you know, was this the real Peter? Was this, um, you know, a, a conflict between Petrine and, um, Marian community, Magdalene communities, you know, who, um, 
you know, again, it's kind of lost to the past, but this is one of these things that we see show up in particularly extra canonical texts again and again. But we also see this at the end of, um, you know, several of the gospels where the women are the ones who are there. And then Peter's like, eh, I don't believe him. And he has to go see for himself. So. Yeah. And what's so fascinating about this, this text is like, you have this idea that this woman has the inner, yeah. the inner mysteries that she knows this. And the P now that, now that you corrected me, it actually makes more sense because Peter being like this church figure, yeah. you know, this patriarchal church figure, you know, and then she's kind of like representing this whole, this other thing, this Gnostic thing that you want, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but like, it's a whole different, it's a whole different tradition in yeah. itself. And there's, like you said, is this what the author's trying to portray is this clash between these two traditions? Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Could be true. Yeah. You know? Thanks for that super chat. Dr. Cheryl's in the house. Thank you for the super chat. Can you speak about incest in the Adam and Eve family? Who is Cain's wife? Wow. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. So these are great questions. And, you know, these are things that the Bible just doesn't deal with the fact that like all of these people are like, if this is really what happened, um, that then all of these people are related and um, that, then incest, you know, who would Cain have been with? Well, if the only woman there is Eve, you know, it's, I mean, we don't have any answers around this. And I think this is one of the places to, um, you know, there's, we can speculate in all kinds of ways, but, you know, to go back to your point, Neil, about people not really um, taking all of this at face value, I do wonder how much, you know, there was worry about this discussion in the ancient world. And we definitely have, um, you know, places in the law, you know, in Jewish law that forbid incest. I mean, I, if I'm remembering correctly in Leviticus, and I should know this, um, but that would be something really good to check out. But I am, I want to say I'm like 99% sure um, that that's there. So just to notice too, that we get um, these, these two seemingly different things that happen um, within, you know, the first five books of, um, of the Hebrew scriptures. And, but they're really great. They're really great questions. And then I think also push us to think maybe more, um, more mythologically and to ask these questions about, you know, um, what does it, what does it mean? How do we account for this? And then to also notice the, the places where later interpreters actually do bring up these things because they're great questions. We yeah. want to be able to ask all of these questions about the text and see if there are other, you know, other folks throughout, you know, time who've asked them too. So I think it's an, I think it's an awesome question. And um, like, who was Cain's wife? It doesn't tell us. Um, you know, all of a sudden Cain and Abel are there and, and there we go. So. Yeah, you're right. Leviticus 18 is pretty much covers this topic pretty, pretty in depth, but um, yeah, but you know, I was just, it's funny that you brought this, they brought this up because earlier today I was looking into, um, I've been really doing a lot of looking into the period between Alexander and uh, the Roman, the rise of the Roman Republic and empire. Cause it seems like it's like the the if the Game of Thrones ever happened on Earth, it was that time. Like these these warring states between Ptolemy and Seleucus. But um the Ptolemies, they did this. They 
the their daughters are sent away, married um her brother, which was Ptolemy the second. Or no, Ptolemy I can't remember his last okay, Ptolemy the Soder, this first Ptolemy, had like thirteen sons and daughters. He had a whole bunch of kids. And he was like basically putting them out throughout to be governors in certain regions. The daughter Arsinoe was married to the first son of his. He dies. And then she mar- then he marries his daughter to the next son. She married two of her brothers in her lifetime. Just saying, like, that's the ancient world. That, like, I mean, we can't change the past. It is what it is. But these are uh-huh. real. And it reminds me of how the Targaryens are portrayed in the Game of Thrones. I wonder if they're... I want Because they, a lot of their... A lot of the um, inspiration for Game of Thrones is from the ancient world. Like, he, uh, I forgot the author's name right now, but he said he looks at the ancient world for a lot of his Martin, right? It's George Martin, Martin yeah. yeah. And like, in like game, like that could be the Ptolemies are like the Targaryens where they're keeping their family together and the sons are marrying the daughters. Like that happened on earth. That happened in real life. Like that's what the Ptolemies, you know? Well, and you know, I mean, this was a big thing too, even in, um, again, like if it's not in the ancient world, it's too, it's too recent. So, you know, take this with it. But like things like I remember learning, you know, when I was in high school about like Habsburg jaw. And so like thinking about the Habsburgs and part of this was because there was people who were really closely related marrying each other because they want to keep power. I mean, this is how you keep power consolidated. Um, So these families, you know, just kept intermarrying. And so it's not even just the ancient past, but we find these things all the time when we want to kind of keep it, you know, keep it in the family. Um, so, yeah. you know, I found the, um, yeah, this was the, what you're talking about, uh, with the Habsburg family where they have like, you know, the paintings of the family are, hold on a second. Let me just share my screen real quick. This was like the paintings of some of the family, I guess. Yep. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. So like, you know, this is something that happens throughout history and for different different dynasties and whatnot. And unfortunately but, happens. Um, yeah. You know, in, in all kinds of um, not great ways uh, in the contemporary world too. So yeah. But thanks for that super chat. I really appreciate that. Uh, good question. I think there's another one. I think so. Or maybe not. That was the last one. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's see if there's any um, recent questions that aren't supers. No, not that I could see right now. But um, yeah. So, by the way, the book is okay. The book's links in the description for the book. You got to get the book. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. And what are the other stories that are in that you talk? Tell uh, you have the obviously the Apocrypha John that we talked about. And there's the other two that you mentioned. Yeah. So, um, so on the origin of the world, um, I talk about and, uh, and, uh, reality of the rulers also known as hypothesis of the archons. And just so that folks know, I mean, really what I'm doing is this kind of comparative study with the founding narratives of Rome. So I start in Rome with the story of, um, Rhea Silvia, who's the mother of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, and then look at, um, 
the rape of the Sabine women, um, the stories of Lucretia and Virginia, and then really talk about kind of the visual ideology of conquest for Rome during this time period. Then I look at Daphne and Apollo, actually. Um, one of the reasons I, I love that story. And I think it's fascinating that Milton in Paradise Lost actually reads um, Daphne alongside uh, alongside side Eve. And it makes me wonder if there's like some underground tradition um, that's like hanging out in, you know, that that this tradition isn't from nowhere reading Daphne and um and Eve together. Really, really interesting. And then kind of go through the stories and and make some conclusions about what I think is happening. So um there's the book in a nutshell. Yeah, no, and that's interesting because Apollo seems to be like very Luciferian. Obviously, he's a light bringer. He's one of his nicknames is Phobus. Yeah. So which is like brilliant one. And he also has a, one of one of the myths of Apollo is he he has to, he gets in trouble because he I think he kills someone or something. But anyways, Zeus sends him down to Earth for a while, and like it's like getting kicked out of heaven. You got that going on. I'm actually working on a video right now about Lucifer and Satan, and uh -huh. it's been, I've been working on it for a little while. I might have it done by tomorrow. Probably might be done by tomorrow. I don't know. Anyways, it's coming out very soon, and it's I'm I'm looking into all the times, like how does Lucifer become Satan? Because like when you go back before Christianity, there's Lucifer in Roman mythology. He's mentioned. He's mentioned in Ovid's Metamorphoses. He's not an evil character. Nothing really weird. But like Satan is the accuser in Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, and then you also have the devil character. There's all these different devil characters popping up in all these different traditions. Uh, you know, there's underworld gods like Hades. How do these all get combined into one thing? Like you went the Christian, the Christian Satan becomes like this opposer of God. Like he becomes like this grand thing that he never really was in the beginning, you know, and this could be, we can end on this. What, what your thoughts on that are? Maybe you'll help me out for my video too. So, you know, one of the things I think that we find really regularly is that so daemons who are good in the ancient world, well, they're just these mediators between the divine and the human. Like you can get a daemon and you can have inspiration. So there are these mediators that we get. And so these are the things that become demons, which is one of the interesting things once we start to get to Christianity. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I always find fascinating is that in so Paul's letters, there are seven of them that we think that Paul actually, that most historians think Paul actually wrote. And then the other ones we think are uh, pseudonymous, that other people wrote in Paul's name. So Paul in his own letters only uses um, Satan or the Satan, like who knows what it is. And it's in the other ones that the devil ends up, the ones that we don't think he wrote, which are the ones where the devil shows up, which is just you know, interesting to notice this difference in language that we have in the New Testament itself. The word that we use for devil is diabolos, and it just means slanderous or backbiting. It can also be translated as adversary. So it can be, you know, so it really is in some ways this translation of what the Satan is. But then ends up taking these other, you know, taking on Hades and then the ways in which, um, which, you know, I think, uh, um, oh my goodness, the, no, but no, just thinking about all of the ways in which, um, the early Christians start slandering polytheism. So all of these things then take this other constellation of stuff around them that wasn't actually there, which is again, the same thing. With you you just, you just figured out the conclusion of my video. 
and which is that Satan is polytheism incarnate. Yeah. Like the, the, the Christian devil or Satan, or I should say Judeo-Christian Islamic devil, all th- like the three, the three, those three religions, their Satan now is polytheism in, in car- all just take paganism and make them a deity. That's Satan. Well, because, if- because the idea there's no idols are allowed, no, no other gods besides me or, you know, the, the opposer, the, the other that becomes like, that's what Satan is to the eyes of the Christians and the Muslims later on who come out of the Jewish tradition. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you one of these early martyrdoms that you should just take a quick peek at because it's, um, it's from the Christian perspective and they're talking about, I'm sure this is in the, the martyrs of Leon that it shows up, but basically all of these words start getting used for the people who are putting them to death. So you can start to see it there already. Um, that, that it's fascinating. I think you'll get a kick out of it. I can't wait to see that. Um, yeah, that's so that's what's that's my next video coming out. But um, but yeah, I really want people to real to um really want to stress that this is one of the best books out. I really do think that people really should check it out. The links in the description. There also I also have a link for your website in there as well. And um, anything else that you want to promote any projects coming out, any, any announcements that you want to make before we go? I know it's, it's, it's slow going with the research these days, but I'm, I am hoping in the next year, I will have something good and juicy for you, Neil. <laughs> awesome. I'll be definitely here to uh, help you get it out there to people as much as I can, you know, but uh, thanks for your time. And thanks for everybody who was here. This has been a really thanks fun conversation. Time. I really love this stuff. And once again, get the book. It's in the description and you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you.